Now it's time for your feature reports. Up first, we have the April edition of Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Monroe County. Our episode today revolves around political tribalism. Our guest, Marjorie Hershey, professor of political science at Indiana University, walks through the issue of tribalism with our host, Jim Allison. The League of Women Voters airs on the third Thursday of each month on WFHB Community Radio. You can find this program online at WFHB.org or wherever you find your podcasts. You're listening to Civic Conversation, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and our producer is Becky Hill. You can find Civics Conversation every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Marjorie Hershey, who is Professor Emerita Political Science at Indiana University. Professor Hershey, thanks for, very much for being with us today. You're most welcome. Uh, let me start by saying that wherever I seem to look today in the political landscape, I see both activists who stay inside accepted ethical guidelines on the one hand, and we also see extremists who scorn those very guidelines. And I wonder if you could comment on that and maybe give us some clear examples of both. Well, I think we've seen both throughout American history. Um, typically, we regard uh, what is an extreme form of political activity as um, the kinds of unconventional activities known as protests and marches and demonstrations and uh, riots of various kinds. And um, those have really been present for a very long time since the very beginning. In fact, America was founded on on the basis of protests and riots. Um, What they are is the expression of free speech of people who don't otherwise have access to power. Um, When you have access to power, when you have a seat at the table, you can be an activist and an insider. When you're not likely to have a seat at the table and to be listened to at the table, then you have to go out into the streets to get people to hear you. And so uh, the, the real question is which of those times do unconventional activities cross the line into political violence, which does become no longer a small d democratic activity. Um, We've seen that since the beginning as well. Okay, let's talk a little bit about tribalism. We've been hearing a lot about tribalism lately, which I take to mean politics defined more in terms of identity, such as race, ethnicity, or religion, then in the older traditional terms of economics, social welfare, labor unions, distribution of wealth, and so forth. Is that how you understand tribalism? Yes, it is. And I think it coincides with what political scientists have traditionally looked at as one of two dimensions of political debate and discussion in the United States. One is the set of economic issues, social welfare issues, employment questions, that are really the dominant issues in American politics. And uh, we see those uh, expressed most of the time. We saw a great deal of them in the American Rescue Act that President Biden proposed and that was recently passed by Congress. The thing about those issues is that they are negotiable. You can compromise them. 
um, one group says we need to support this particular part of the population with such and such billion dollars. Another group says uh, we need to support them with much less. So you find a happy medium in the middle somewhere. The other set of issues that you've called identity politics, uh, frankly, is most often racial politics. That's been the case in the United States since the beginning. Racial politics is certainly nothing new in the United States. It wasn't new at the time of the revolution. The problem with identity politics is that you can't compromise it very easily. When you're talking about acknowledging a group of people as humans with rights, how do you compromise that? You can't decide that you're going to give half of them rights or that you're going to give them half of the rights as a group. And as a result, whenever we veer into identity politics, that's when uh, small d democracy comes under threat in the United States. How do you think demographic change might affect tribalism? I think it's affecting it most importantly. We have seen greater demographic change in the United States in the past three or so decades than we have had in the past century. We have always been a country of immigrants, but the proportion of immigrants relative to the total has almost never been as large as it has in the past three decades. And most of these immigrants currently are people of color. Most of the immigrants a century ago were people from Europe, who many of them were perceived as being people of color as well. People from Poland and Italy were often seen as being people of color. But now it's clearly, obviously, the case that we have a society whose color is changing. Since 2014, a majority of babies born in the United States have been people of color. The majority of people under the age of about 17 are now people of color. There is a distinct difference in political viewpoints between people of color and white people. People who are white, as we define it, tend to be much more conservative. And as a result, this increase in demographic change, the speed of demographic change, has had a whole lot of consequences. It's had consequences for, for policy. It's had consequences for raising fear on the part of people who have been in charge um, for their adult lives. So do you see tribalism as a serious threat to the American system of government? Well, it's always been a threat to the American system of government. The founders were concerned about it right from the get-go in worrying about the mischiefs of faction. They were saying, basically, we can have groups of people who put their own interests above the interest of the community as a whole. They didn't see that so much in racial terms because people who were people of color at that time simply were not uh, possessing a political power at all. So it didn't really matter to the founders. But since that time, we have very often had times when those racial issues, those identity issues have been pushed to the fore for one reason or another. 
And uh, whenever you're thinking of yourself primarily as a white person or primarily as a person of color, that does make it a bit more difficult to view in a, in a uh, kind of a low temperature way the needs and the interests of people who are different from you. And that's really tough on a democracy. Um, in a democracy, mutual respect is critical. Well, aside from the Civil War, of course, do you think that our form of government has faced any more serious threats than it faces today? And to my mind, at least, the America First movement of the 1930s comes to mind. The America First movement certainly was. Um, so was the, the anti-immigrant and anti-communist movement of the 1920s. Um, so was the House on american Activities Committee action in the 1950s. Um, We've had this over and over again, in which there have been times when some groups have been able to convince their followers that difference is weaponized, that difference is not just difference. Difference in a democracy ought to be a good thing. The more variety of viewpoints you get in a democratic system, the more likely you are to get closer to an answer that is reasonable for everybody. If you are able to isolate your people and say, these folks over there are not just different from us, they are traitorous to the United States, or they are hostile to us, or they are trying to cancel us or wipe us out, then you've got a real problem in the democratic system. But it's one that we have faced over and over again. Okay. Now, I hear that you've been studying our politicians' susceptibility to campaign resources provided by the more extreme elements of our population. What can you tell us about that research? The research has told us that we have a major issue in terms of a change in the contributions that are coming into elections. Money comes into elections in two ways. One way is when people like you and me give money to candidates. That for the last 45 years has been regulated. It's been relatively transparent. You can go to fec.gov and see who's given money to Todd Young and to Mike Braun and to anybody else you're interested in. As a result, however, loopholes have developed because there are some folks who don't want their fingerprints on money that comes into elections. And that loophole was started by the Supreme Court with the Buckley versus Vallejo decision in 1976. It was expanded on by several other decisions, including the Citizens United decision and its almost equally important companion decision, um, Speech Now, which uh, further expanded the rights of groups such as corporations in the public sphere, that said, if you don't give the money that you want to contribute to a candidate, but instead, if you either use the money directly on an ad, or if you give money to a group that's going to use the money on an ad, it's unlimited. There is no ceiling on the amount of money that you can put into the funds that can be given to try to influence people's views in an election. Now, as far as the consumers are concerned, it's hard for us to tell 
it's hard for us to see an ad that's from a candidate, even though it has as its disclaimer at the end, um, the candidate has to say, I was responsible for this ad. Or to see an ad that says at the end, call so-and-so and tell him to stop sneaking out on his wife, um, which is what you'd see in independent spending, that, uh, that there's a difference between those two. The first of those is carefully regulated. The second of those is the Wild West. And um, unless we can have a change in the Supreme Court's approach to defining free speech as being free paid speech, then I think we're going to find that identity politics is going to be stressed in an awful lot of campaign advertising because it works and because people can get away with it. Well, Professor Hershey, thank you so much. And thanks to our listening audience for listening to us today on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. In May 2021, please join us when we talk about white supremacy with James Madison, author of The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland. Thank you.